Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Returning to Dr. Doctor is pediatrician and bioethicist, Dr. Ashley Fernandez. Among other things, he's an expert on how doctors and nurses were voluntarily complicit in the atrocities of the Holocaust, as well as the chilling similarities between the medical hierarchy of Germany in the 1930s and early 40s, and even in some places of modern American medicine. Chris, why do you think this is such an important topic? Well, listeners, stay tuned. I mean, I'm I'm not sure this could be a, a there could be any topic more important than this one. Perhaps you know Ashley is a great resource for everything. So one good reason to listen to us is just because it's Dr. Fernandez. <laughs> <laughs> but we all know the adage: those who forget the past are doomed to relive it. Paraphrased, of course, yes. and often repeated, but still very, very relevant. We cannot forget uh, our past. And, you know, I'd point out to listeners, remember the Holocaust just really wasn't that long ago. You know, it's easy to think about black and white movies and sort of relegate the horrors of the event to the history books, um, but it isn't ancient history. Yet in today's 24-hour news cycle, a big story pops up and then it's gone and it's out of our consciousness just like that. But I recall my very first biology professor in college at Florida State University, Dr. Johann Stey, who's no longer alive, he was a Holocaust survivor. Wow. Um, yeah, he was imprisoned for being a scientist who didn't carry the line. And he was a pretty tough old guy, but he survived some pretty tough conditions. But we, as we learn, as we talk about good people, in some cases, attributed the evils of the Holocaust simply by remaining silent. And I know we're going to talk more about that with Ashley when we get there, but we're going to see parallels to some of the things that are going on in society and in particular in medicine today. It's really tempting to, you know, to close our eyes and turn away from something that's unsightly like these realities, but we just can't, especially as faithful Catholics. I mean, we're the Easter people. We always, <laughs> we have to stand for life, especially when it's awkward and dangerous and difficult to do, because sadly, increasingly, no one else will but us. Ashley wrote a paper with a nurse, Diane Eckert, called The Effect of Hierarchy on Moral Silence in Healthcare, What the Holocaust Can Teach Us. And they start the paper with a modern American story of something that should be chilling to us. And this occurred in the, in the town where Ashley lives, Columbus, Ohio. In early 2019, Dr. William Husell, an intensive care physician, was accused of the murder of at least 25 patients over a period of five years. And what did he do? On night shifts often, he gave overdoses of narcotics to patients to hasten their death. And nobody had asked him to do this. He decided to do it, and it often required that nurses would follow through on that order. Now, Tom, our listeners need to to pause. You said 2019, not 1920. You said Correct. the year 2019, very, very recently. And it didn't and it didn't stop until an employee spoke up and made an anonymous report. But I someone, mean, not someone, but some group of individuals had to remain silent in the face of abject evil in order to allow this atrocity to occur. Right. And this is just a smaller scale of what happened in Germany. But I think Ashley's going to tell us they were as human as we are. And if we're not careful and if we're morally silent, our consciences will get weaker and weaker and we will tolerate things we thought we would never tolerate. Yeah, I know for a fact we're going to get to talk to Ashley about this, but it, it all boils down, I believe, to personhood. If we can convince ourselves that uh, the entity in front of us is not a person. Sadly, there's no limit to the evil that we're capable of. The reciprocal is also true. If we can remind ourselves and those around us that we're dealing with a person and that a person has value, then there are things that our conscience will never allow to happen. 
one of the things that's helped me practically with this is when I'm around somebody who say is so immature intellectually because of, uh, you know, they were born without something we have is to talk to them and about them as if they're understanding everything I can say, or a patient with dementia that I'm operating on talking to them and about them as if they do understand everything I can say. That's really helped me. I don't know if you've had any little things that help you, Chris. Yeah. I mean, everyone, everyone deserves to be spoken to, uh, appropriately, don't they? Not in a condescending way, um, but in a way that they can understand and in a way that conveys respect and dignity because uh, they're a human person. And in our profession, I think we especially have that obligation because they're giving us the honor of taking care of them. The very yes. least we can do is treat them with the respect that they deserve. And now the medical trivia question of the day. I chose the category military nurses because of the era we're going to talk about today and the incredible role that uh, nurses play for the good. So the question is, during World War II, how many nurses served on active duty taking care of sick and wounded soldiers and assisting in operating rooms? You'll have to wait till the end of the show for the answer, but we'll be right back after the break with Ashley Fernandez here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome to that part of the show now when we get to introduce our guest today. We have returning to the Dr. Doctor microphone, Ashley K. Fernandez, double doctor, MD, PhD, master's in philosophy from Johns Hopkins, PhD in philosophy from Georgetown University in bioethics. He's now at the Ohio State University where he's director of professionalism and associate director of the Center for Bioethics. He's associate professor of pediatrics at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. He was 2020's Ohio State College of Medicine's Professor of the Year. I hope you get to know him and love him as much as we here we do here. Thanks for coming back, Ashley. Hey guys, thanks for having me back. It really, it really it, does it, seem it, appropriate to call you Doctor Doctor with an MD PhD. <laughs> <laughs> that works out nicely. Well, Ashley, we have you on so often simply because you've got so much to offer us and our listeners. So thank you again for joining us. But on this, you know, rather serious topic, um, we hear said a lot of times how many people died in the Holocaust, this million or that million. But give us and our listeners a real sense of how many people actually died to the best of our knowledge in the Holocaust? Well, that's a great question to start out with. And I want to just clarify for the listeners that, again, I'm not a historian, so I love to borrow other people's hard work in the field of history. And from my studies of studying the Holocaust and the impact that it's had on medical ethics, I think we can safely say that, first of all, when we're talking about the Holocaust, we're talking specifically about the attempted extermination of the entire European Jewish population. And so when we're looking at that number specifically in reference to that word Holocaust, we're talking about the Jewish population. And most historians estimate that to be around 6 million, which is an astounding number. These are 6 million individual persons who had lives, livelihoods. In addition to that, I think we can say that that's probably underestimated. Those are the ones that we know of. There are many others that were killed because of starvation, killed because of disease that happened after the camps, um, after the liberation of the camps. If we take the people that were killed across, not just the Jews in the camps, but then other persons that were killed within the concentration camps, most historians estimate that number to be at, at least 9 million non-Jews. In addition to the 6 million. In addition Jews. to the 6 million. It's an astounding yeah. number. And I, I think I know I've heard those numbers commingled before, and it usually has a tendency of under, um, sort of underwowing the listener, you might say. But yeah, we're talking about 15 plus million not 6 million. Yes. And I keep emphasizing this, but when you think about that number, just a gigantic number like that's almost unfathomable. Mm. And so that that doesn't allow us to really think about how serious this is. These are individual right. human beings, babies, wives, mothers, priests, Catholic priests. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, when you think about these people that were put to death at the hands of Nazis and organized and orchestrated by physicians and bureaucrats in the medical bureaucracy. It is a real tragedy for our profession. So what Ashley, are you interested in this, Ashley? So that's a good question. I took a class at 
on medicine and medical ethics in the Holocaust at Georgetown University, actually. And the purpose of that class um, when I was doing my PhD studies was really to teach about, it was more of a historical class. How did Nazi physicians become interested and involved? And we learned about the medical experimentation. We read Proctor's book on Nazi medicine, Robert Proctor's book, which if people are interested in history, this is this is the sort of Bible of the, the medical atrocities that occurred in the Holocaust. And that course really was seminal for me in thinking about professionalism and professional identity mm. and how physicians identify their role within this great profession of ours and how it might be corrupted by cultural influences, by influences within the scientific community. So I'll, that when I became an attending physician and I got interested in medical education, this is something I really wanted to pursue as a scholarly and intellectual interest. So Ashley, as Catholics, we often say the corruption of the best results in the worst. We only have to think of Lucifer for that. Is it true that German medicine was among the best in the world and then it sank to the worst during this era? Yes, I think people, I think your listeners have to remember that. It's a very, very important point that we tend to almost caricature German physicians who participated in the Holocaust and participated in the experimentation and the organization of these death camps. But these doctors pre-war were considered the best in the world. Americans who finished their medical studies would go to Germany to do postdocs in medicine and study at German universities. And so, in fact, some of our most famous um, universities today that have excellent reputations for scientific inquiry, like Johns Hopkins, the University of Iowa, I hate to say this, but the University of Michigan, a lot of these, <laughs> a lot of these were, were built on the model of the German medical school, not the racial model, but I'm just saying that the, with, with that sort of scientific rigor mm -hmm. and, you know, in, like the, the insistence um, upon true hard science that then um, informed clinical practice. So that the best and the brightest in the world became so easily corrupted is a great lesson for us because it shows us that just because you can do things or even do things, create things with your mind, be creative in science, there's a whole other element to science, which is the moral element. And just being the most powerful, most productive, most scientific, um, scientifically rigorous profession doesn't mean you are going to necessarily do good if you don't meld that to proper moral um, behavior. Well, isn't that interesting? I'm at the risk of getting beyond our scope a little. So if we take at one point in time, these world-renowned physicians, nurses, and scientists, and then at another point in time, not, not very long from the original point, they're creating these horrific atrocities. What what changed and what allows someone to do that? How, how can that happen? I have my own theories about personhood, but how does that work? Yeah, well, you've touched on it. I sort of call it, when I think about this, I, I tend to think about it as like the, what I call the four Ps, okay? The first and probably most important one is personhood, hmm. is physicians, nurses, people in, in the healthcare professions, their kind of substrate, the thing that they work on is a person, is a human person. And all of what you do, whether for good or for ill, hinges on how you view that person. Nazi ideology, and in fact, not just Nazi ideology, um, Marxist ideology, and even some of the secularist ideologies we see today do not believe in the transcendent view of the person. And the minute that happens, you make that switch that all human beings are, is a material, are material things like I like to say, a random collection of atoms, then you can place other goods above the value of that human being. Only when you say this person is transcendent, it changes the way you practice medicine altogether because I mean, there are I'm, just some things you wouldn't be able to do. Yeah, I imagine we'll, we'll touch on it at later points as well, but isn't it interesting the parallels with our abortion discussions? Because if I think that person in front of me is a person, to your point, there's things that I just can't make myself do. Right. Under but any circumstances. Yeah. But if I can convince myself it's actually not a person, 
whether it's the way the Nazis viewed their Jewish prisoners or the way some of our colleagues view the unborn in the womb, then there's no limit to what we can do at that point. Yes, exactly. And then other goods, rational goods, come to the forefront and they tempt us, you see. So these are the other P's, right? So physicians happen to have, so I said, I mentioned personhood, but then we also have this idea of power. As a physician or as a nurse, you had immense power over people to begin mm-hmm. with by the nature of that profession. That is a, it can be a good thing if you're a surgeon, if you are a physician, you want to be able to say, I would recommend this, I would do this and, and have that with some authority. But it also poses a constant temptation because with power and then the other P, another P is privilege. So not only do you have power, like some secret bureaucrats have, but you have a privilege, a certain status in society. And the Nazi bureaucrats and planners made use of the fact that physicians were held in high esteem. They used that privilege as a temptation and as a public relations um, strategy to say, hey, the racial policies that we have in place are not just our ideas. They are embraced by these physicians who you love and who respect and who you trust and who have power over you already and who you trust to take care of your body. The last P is pride, right? So every person has that temptation when you have power and privilege to say, now I'm in charge. Now I'm the person who gets to say, this is right. This is wrong. Do this. Don't do this. And, you know, these four P's, personhood, privilege, power, pride, they pose these constant temptations to people that work in the healthcare professions. And I think by studying Nazi medicine and how this came to be with the best and the brightest, we can explore that a little more and help to prevent that from happening uh, in modern times. Well, fascinating. I mean, from a practical standpoint, help listeners understand really what role did nurses and physicians play uh, in the Holocaust? Yeah. So I'm going to start out with a kind of provocative statement, which is that the death camps, the extermination of the Jews and the non-Jews that occurred in these camps I don't believe, from my studies, could have happened without the active participation, planning, and execution that physicians had as leaders. The bureaucrats in the in in Hitler's um, power structure believed that doctors were in fact the key. Um, they were more important than the bureaucrat because they had this status in society, and and I think that by the active participation for most doctors or the passive non-resistance to those edicts and to the racial policies of the Nazis really allowed people to in the culture to buy in to these policies. So let me give you guys a concrete example. When we think about the beginnings of the Holocaust, the first people to actually be exterminated were the disabled. And that's an example of where medical cooperation was needed. It was needed both in the figuring out exactly how to efficiently exterminate people who were viewed as not valuable to the race. So physicians and scientists themselves designed the early quote unquote gas chambers, and they would put disabled children into rooms and they would actually hook up a tube from a truck and pump carbon monoxide into the rooms as the children screamed and were gassed to death. This was not thought to be wrong because you were allowing children to end their suffering. Mm. Children that any rational person would say um, are not contributing to this greater good, which is the state and the, and the, and the, the good of the race, and which physicians actively helped to participate now, Ashley, it seems to me for that setup, you didn't need a physician to come up with an idea, but did the higher ups want the physicians to be the ones doing it, even though they wouldn't necessarily have had to hook up, you know, a pipe of carbon monoxide to a room? Yeah, they, yes, they absolutely did not need a physician to do that technical work, but what they did need to do, that what they did need to have was a physician to create the kind of moral um, metaphor for for this um, killing. So I, I say it's a metaphor because the way the Germans framed it was Germany is a body. The people that we consider to be unfit, the people that we consider to be not useful to us 
can be seen as a disease that clings to the body. And we need to isolate that disease. And if we can't isolate it for the good of the body, we need to cut it out. Now, who better to accomplish this than the physician? The physician is the person who, when you have disease, will seek to isolate it, to cure it, to heal it, and to cut it out. Mm-hmm. And if you repeat this over and over again, the physician then becomes the symbol of the, of the racial state of the person who's going to care for the health of the state and for you. It's a mixing of these two roles, the physician as the double agent, you know, the, the frightening role that sometimes we find ourselves tempted to be in. I'm caring for you, but I'm also caring for the state or the interests of some other good here, you know. So, so I think that's um, that's a real process. Ashley, have any of those physicians afterwards described their internal descent into their loss of conscience? Was anybody able to come back from it? I think there there were some certainly um, who regretted what they did. Um, there, there were only a handful, a couple of dozen, that were put on trial at the Nuremberg trials for crimes against humanity, physicians, that is what they called the doctor's trial. And most of them actually made a defense of their actions, including the most famous one that was put on trial there named Carl Brandt. And he poses a very rational defense. If you listen to it, he says that the people that he euthanized, the disabled people that he euthanized, he was not doing, he didn't even think it was a moral issue. He was giving them aid. Okay, you notice purveyors of assisted suicide call this medical aid in dying. Carl Brandt makes that same argument. He says that he was relieving them of suffering and he didn't consider what he did to be wrong or immoral at all. He, to the very end, defended his view. And I think once society takes a view that you can say, this is a person only if they're able to do this or only if they fulfill this role, you open yourself up to the ability to do anything to them. Sure. And- I mean, just practically speaking, we many want to define the life of a child when they can survive outside the, the womb. Yet nowhere in our life discussions do we typically define life based on your ability to do a list of things. Right. Because it's so easy to lose some of those abilities through disease, through trauma, through other things. And then suddenly you've lost your definition as a human person. And that's what the regimen the regime did really it, un, it undefined these people as people and therefore made it very easy to remove them didn't it yes that's correct and i think it what it did to the profession as a whole it had a profound impact on the profession culture mm. affects our medical profession and our medical profession affects the culture and we're seeing that a lot now and i think you know in the way that people are treating medicine and science almost like a god mm. You know, it, it's, and, and that's one of the other lessons we can learn from studying medicine in the Holocaust is that science needs morality. It is not a God in and of itself. We have given today physicians, scientists, so much power that you hear these phrases like believe the science. Okay. <laughs> I, I, that's a pet peeve of mine. I hate that phrase. You don't believe, believe is a word you use for religion, right? Re, re, it, and, which I have no problem with. If you are a practicing Hindu or a practicing Muslim, and you want to believe in your God, believe in your God, but you mm-hmm. don't believe in science as if it's a God. Um, and, and that worries me. You should believe in truth. And hopefully science always comports with the truth. But when you start hearing these phrases, believe the science, that tells me that we're developing this dogmatic acceptance of anything that we can do, we ought to do, and that you're not allowed to question it. Ashley, in the title of your paper on this subject, you talk about two terms, hierarchy and moral silence. And reading through the paper, it almost sounds like hierarchy on the scales is more negative than positive, but we know that hierarchy has a purpose. So help us understand good medical hierarchy from dangerous medical hierarchy. Yeah, that's excellent. And in this context, it's important. So, you know, hierarchy is just exactly what it sounds like. Those of us that are involved in medicine know that there are leaders on the team and that oftentimes that leadership is necessary. For example, when you run a code, 
You need someone who leads the team. When you have a teaching hospital, you need someone who is the leader of that team to teach residents, young physicians, medical students, nurses, et cetera. And so hierarchy can have its place where expertise is utilized in the correct way. But where hierarchy has a negative influence is when people with, do not question the moral implications of a particular clinical or medical action. And that is because there's a consequence, a moral consequence to resistance or a moral consequence to questioning. And that often happens. You see that every physician listening out there knows in their training, there were things they saw and there were things that happened that should not have happened. But because the person above you has so much power and can affect your grade or can affect your evaluation, people tend to stay silent. They are afraid that there will be repercussions if they speak out on the moral issues. And, uh, and much of that happened during the Nazi times and much of that happened today. And that's a great place to take a break between our two halves of this interview with Ashley Fernandez on moral silence, hierarchy, the Holocaust. Lessons for today. We'll be back in a moment here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor with Dr. Ashley Fernandez. So, Ashley, I mean, I think we could probably talk for days and days about some of the atrocities and how sad it is that the medical professionals participated in those atrocities. Sitting at our vantage point now, it seems unthinkable. However, we all know that some pretty unthinkable things are happening today, whether that's, you know, transgender children having their gender changed with medication and surgery or abortion or euthanasia uh, and the like. Let's, let's help the listeners with some parallels to the things that are happening today. And what kind of safeguards could we or should we have in place to prevent the same kind of participation in those atrocities? That's a great question. I want to make sure that because there's so much sensitivity around the subject, I want to make sure your listeners understand parallels between what happens today and what happens in Nazi Germany are to be made very carefully. So mm -hmm. we don't want to trivialize what happened then that shows a certain kind of dishonor to the memory of people that died. My purpose in teaching this and in trying to point out these parallels is not that, oh, everyone who does these things today is a Nazi or that we live in a totalitarian state like the Nazis or anything like that. It's not really a political statement. It's a statement. It's a I ask that listener to reflect on the moral process that happens when you start to decide that you can be silent about a moral evil that is in front of you. Okay, so let's take an example. Let's take some examples contemporarily. In the case of abortion, we have a situation in which people have decided that the human person are those kinds of beings that are wanted, okay, and that serve a function to a particular person and that are only persons when they are born. No matter, so there's a, there's a certain, we're parsing out what constitutes a person. Physicians are participating in this. Now, suppose I'm a pro-life physician and I say, you know what? I don't think that's right. The science shows us that this is a human being from conception, a unique, genetically unique human being from conception. I want to challenge that. Now you have a medical establishment that is firmly against it. What happens to that pro-life physician? He or she is ostracized within their profession. He or she is called a fringe doctor. They are not allowed to engage in that kind of debate. What do people say? They say, well, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology says it's okay. Right. And therefore it's okay. This is the exact same kind of pressure, a, a very similar kind of pressure, I should say, not the exact same kind, but a very similar kind of pressure was placed on physicians during the time of the Nazis. This is our dogma. This is what we believe is true science, true medicine. You are on the outside of it and you better get inside of it if you want to have a good living and if you want to if you want to be part of the crowd. And I think that's a very, very strong pressure on physicians today. Oh, it is. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Well, and I think it's so easy using this lens of history to think way back to Nazi Germany. Well, something like that could never happen again. But not opinion, fact. It is happening again. It has happened again. It happens every day. It does. You, you work in medical education. You know about the power of the hierarchy. I certainly have been that physician in my career that that you described. That, you know the fear of being ostracized and penalized by the, you know, sort of the, the bureaucracy of medicine. It's it's very powerful. Yes, uh, and, and and before the break, you know, Tom 
was asking me about this concept of moral silence. So I just want to I just want to tack on to this notion, right? So you're this physician or you're this medical student and you're listening to someone say, "Hey, it's okay to kill your patient if your patient wants it." And that's how you should. Or hey, if a woman wants an abortion, not only do you have to do it, but if you don't do it, you have to refer. You're sitting there and I want you to imagine your listeners to imagine that kind of pressure. So you stay silent. You think, "You know what? I'm just going to go along with this. I'm just going to go along with it one time." Or I'm just going to say nothing. Maybe there's another pro-life student or maybe there's another pro-life physician in that room and they don't hear anybody saying anything either. That's moral silence. You know something is wrong, but you don't have either the, you're not empowered to say something about it, or if you are, the consequences are so severe that you choose to remain silent. That's a serious problem. It's a serious problem because it affects your conscience. It affects the development of your conscience so that the next time you're faced with that same situation, you are more apt to be silent than you were otherwise. And then guess so what? What does the student or nurse do in that position when they see something, this is wrong, what do you encourage them to do and how do they do it? Well, I think there are ways they can do, they can, they can, there are very practical ways. So if it's in a course or a class, there are always evaluations. And I can tell you as a medical educator, we pay attention to those evaluations. So Catholic medical students, Catholic nursing students, should point out in their evaluation, they should not be afraid to say, I am a student of a particular religion and I found these comments intimidating. I found these comments offensive um, and they should call them out. I think that using words like that, these sort of like buzzwords, yes. Yes, yeah, buzzwords. buzzwords for the, for um, medical educators will get some attention. And, and the fact is that it's true. I mean, th these are, it is very, very hard. And I've talked to a lot of Catholic medical students, very, very hard to sit in a room with this sage on stage who's telling you things that they like, like this whole ridiculous trope that um, pregnancy is more dangerous than abortion. I mean, you're sitting there listening to this and people around you are nodding and you think, oh man, I wanted to go into OB. Now, do I have to swallow all this mm -hmm. in order to have a successful career in OB? But, you know, as a, as a recovering hospital administrator, I can tell you, <laughs> you know, medicine has done a great job at empowering people to speak up in the chain of command and things like that for safety practices. Correct. You know, maybe, right. maybe wrong medication, something like that. But at the same time, we've made, you know, tremendous progress there. We've gone in the opposite direction on matters of morality and conscience, whereas yeah. we should be using the same structure. Absolutely. And, and I think that that, um, that, that that is extremely important. Even if we don't, if, if the people in power do not agree, the ability to voice dissent, the ability to feel empowered to break that moral silence is so important. I mean, you mentioned quality. Even when we think about medical errors, okay, if you see something, say something, right? If you see that there's a danger in the workplace, in the hospital setting, you should feel that you are able to say something about it. And we take that very seriously and everyone believes we should empower people to do that. It should be the same with morality, even if you don't agree and even if there's a discussion. Um, but but people don't want that these days. And, and Okay, it's Ashley, we're on hospital rounds. You've got attending, fellow, resident, student, nurse, and they hear something from the attending that is morally wrong or questionable. How do they handle it in that situation when there's a real flesh and blood patient there? So, you know, I always tell my students that there may be moments where you can't handle, like it would be very challenging to contradict the attending right then and there. Although there may be some circumstances where patient safety is an issue or at risk and you ought to do that anyway and risk everything. Okay. So I'm not saying there are never circumstances like that. But there are other ways. So the way, let's say a patient is treated poorly because they have five children and they're condescended to. Maybe the, the medical student goes back later and talks to that family and treats them like a human being and, and shows by their actions that they count. Um, I think there are ways the residents or fellows who teach other residents and students can turn around and say, Hey, you know, the way the attending acted in that can have a teaching moment where they say, they call them aside. I used to do this when I was a resident. I would call my resident side and I would say, my 
my interns and medical students, I would say, you know, you saw that interaction that really wasn't right. We should be treating this person better. We should be giving them, you know, this option or that option. We should be talking to them in a certain way. And the, the people that are under you will see that. The one way to break the moral hierarchy is kind of from within. This is one way when Catholic physicians, medical students, residents aren't in power, they can start to break down the, the hierarchy from within, from the way they behave, and from those quiet conversations they have with patients and colleagues when nobody else is watching. It's a kind of resistance. <laughs> well, that's really well said. I mean, it, it just gets back to that to that modeling. And even if you're not the sage on stage, you still have the chance to model for those around us that might be watching. Um, yes. We, we don't want to pass up those opportunities. That's right. So is there is there the concept of moral courage presented at all in medical education? And if so, how can it be presented? Because Oftentimes, students go in and they assume that what they're being taught is what they're supposed to be. So if, you know, Catholic medical students, other medical students of goodwill, how do they know who to trust and who not to trust? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think one of the things that, you know, as now as a parent, we kind of always worry about is the moral formation of our children. Are they going to be ready when they're confronted with things in the world that go against their Catholic faith, their, their moral principles. Mm. It's, that's a challenging question, Tom, because I think um, there is a need for moral courage, but for, the, for kind of the establishment in medicine to acknowledge that, they would have to suggest that there are things that are wrong, right? What are you courageous against? So if, <laughs> right. if, if what is, if what is uh, sort of the establishment is taken by that fact, de facto, to be true, and not just true, but morally true, right? Then, then there's nothing to have courage against. So I think one of the, one of the ways we can, um, again, is, is formation prior to entry into the health professions to be able to know, hey, when I have a question, when I'm not sure, what are those resources I can go to that will give me that courage? I mean, Tom, you just organized one of the most amazing, successful Catholic Medical Association conferences that I've ever been to. And I can tell you the impact that something like that had on the trainees' moral courage was astounding. For them to be able to go, for example, to see other medical students and other residents, young and, and nurses. There were a, a lot of nurses there. To, for them to and look two around. sages on the stage that are on air with me right now between you and Chris. <laughs> what great examples I saw on YouTube. Thanks, But, but you know, in, in, in reality... Tolerance has been sort of the mantra, particularly of those on the the leftward leaning philosophical side. Tolerance is everything. And then I know one large uh, board, medical specialty board, I happen to be a member of the board, <laughs> sent out a notice a couple of weeks ago that was warning physicians, if you say something that is anti-science about the COVID vaccine, you could face sanction. And so on the first read, you think, well, that, that makes sense. You shouldn't be running around saying things that aren't true. But then you realize, wait a second, who is defining uh, what is anti-science and what is incorrect? And suddenly it's the antithesis of tolerance. You either toe the line or you're out. And when you have that kind of thing happening, it's impossible to have the courage to stand up. People are afraid for their livelihood, literally their, their livelihood. Yes. And, and that, that, you know, that's another lesson that we can learn. There were financial incentives for physicians during the Nazi period to stay silent and to not say anything. For example, they excluded Jews from practicing medicine at all, essentially, except on other Jews. They lost their professorships. And so these positions opened up and, and really, honestly, if you were a Gentile physician, a non-Jewish physician during that time, what incentive did you have to speak up for your Jewish brother or sister that was excluded from the medical profession or taken out from a professorship where now you had a chance? I mean, I've challenged my own medical students. If you had a shot at a derm residency position <laughs> because they excluded, say, Catholics from being dermatologists, you know, this most competitive specialty, what incentive do you have to say, hey, no, that's wrong? You know, I, they should be allowed to practice medicine the way they want. You really wouldn't have much incentive. So even this financial incentive and, and the, the, the fear of losing your livelihood 
is something that can keep people morally silent. And you know, Chris, I saw that same announcement. It was like very frightening to me right. as someone who studied this issue that you would combine medical licensure with adherence to what a board called science and who was defining science. And although this dealt with COVID, and yes, you and I agree, we don't want kind of quacks out there talking about don't get the vaccine because of this, you know, because of crazy reasons. It's not going to be long if society accepts the linking of boards, what, what a board says about what's ethical to medical licensure before they start saying, hey, you accepted it with misinformation about COVID. Now we're going to talk about misinformation about pregnancy. Absolutely. Or now we're going to talk about misinformation about end of life options. Now you're defying the science on that. You're going to lose your license. That yeah. and Ashley, we've got five minutes left. And I know you've got five key takeaways, lessons from this. Yep. Let's go to it. Absolutely. So what I want people to remember, what can the, the Holocaust teach us about medicine today? I want to say that the first thing is that the human person has value and dignity because they are a person. Remember, your value is not based on contingent factors like economics, usefulness to the state, your actions, past, present, or future. The second thing is that all medical professionals should feel empowered to speak up and act on your conscience. What is legal or accepted by boards is not necessarily what is right. And remember that your conscience is like an active force. It's a driving force. There's a real danger in a purely legalistic bioethics or clinical practice. The third thing I want to say is that science or medicine are not gods, and they may not always be, quote, objective. We have the right to say and to question what the scientific establishment says about what is right or moral. Albert Einstein himself was considered one of the greatest scientists of all time. He has this beautiful quote, which I love. He says, we should take care not to make the intellect our God. It has, of course, powerful muscles, but no personality. And what, <laughs> and what he meant by that was, was that it can do a lot of things, but it cannot tell us what is right from wrong. Medicine and science have this amazing, almost unbridled power, but it really needs to be controlled. It is not a God, and it needs human beings to look at it from a moral lens. I think the fourth you know what that reminds me of oh. is in this pandemic, trying to find doctors who to trust. One that I trust on most things is a is another a first generation or second generation Indian like you, Vinay Prasad. Are you familiar with him? I am not. He he's out. I think at UCSF. He's probably a he's a self described you know left leaning, but everything he says, he says science does not drive policy. Science plus the values of the community. That's right. That can put policy. So it sounds like what with, with what you're saying. That's right. That's right. And and that those are the kind of doctors we need to listen to. The yes. kind that just don't say believe the science. They should be saying again, believe the truth, and we hope that science always comports with the truth. Mm, I think the fourth four. the fourth lesson Tom is to, we need to and and Chris, we need to resist the desensitization to depersonalization that we have in, that's so common in the practice of medicine. Dehumanization and and is so common in medical practice. Persons can never be reduced or should never be reduced to statistics, to conditions, to diagnoses. The, the language we use is important. A person in a coma is not a vegetable, you know, just to take that as an example. Yes. And, and, and we ought to be careful with the language in which we use. I mean, for our president to call the COVID pandemic, the quote, the pandemic of the unvaccinated, okay, I mean, these are the, the unvaccinated people that live in our country have fears, worries, anxieties about this vaccine. They are not to be blamed for the pandemic. I think that's a serious miscalculation and it's a depersonalization. It makes people who are mad about the pandemic suddenly mad mm -hmm. at a group of people who are complex individuals and are making their choices for choices of their own. That The worry that I have about that is it really stirs up the emotions of people against a small segment of the population, and that's wrong. And, I, and the, the last thing I want to say, the, the sort of the fifth lesson, um, is that remember as physicians and nurses and other health professionals, we serve the patient first. The power that we have in that white coat demands of us that we have, we be very cautious, 
with any state involvement, that we separate the goals of what the physician, the goals of the physician to help the patient from the goals and goods of society, and that we maintain personal virtue in our own lives, as well as trying to influence the professional virtues within our noble profession. Well, Ashley, I can't, uh, I can't think of a more uh, relevant and meaningful discussion of this topic. And uh, for those listeners maybe that couldn't imagine where we were going when they heard us start the episode, uh, I bet they're glad they stuck with us. I, I know I'm glad that I stuck with us. Thank you so much for joining us again on Dr. Doctor. I personally can't wait to have you back again. Oh, invite me back anytime. I love hanging out with you guys. I can be your, <laughs> Thank you, Ashley. I can be God your mascot you. anytime. Take care, you guys. <laughs> you bet. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and I hope you've stuck with us to hear the exciting answer to this trivia question. <laughs> but to review, during World War II, how many nurses served on active duty taking care of sick and wounded soldiers and assisting in operating rooms, Tom? At the beginning of World War II, there were 8,500. By the end of the war, there were 70,000 nurses taking care of of soldiers in World War II. And the reason I ask this question is because we're dealing with an era in history in which we were fighting a tremendous evil, which Ashley has just helped us to understand. And nurses, uh, nurses do something that allow doctors to do what we do. Without them, we could not take care of patients the way that they deserve. Amen. I mean, arguably, much of medicine is practiced, so to speak, by our nursing colleagues there at the yes. bedside, just like they were, uh, whether it was the Civil War or whether it was World War II, they're at the bedside, they're comforting, they're actually providing the hands-on care. There are many, many more of them than there are of we doctor types. And without them, simply care would not get uh, delivered. I know for me, they make me look good. I think my patients think I'm a better doctor than I am because of having good nurses. Well, Tom, I think nurses are remarkable. I think there's a limit to what they can do. So I'm not sure about them making you look good, but, um, <laughs> but they're, they're primed to like me. When you have a good nurse who goes in the room first and they're happy with the nurse, they are pr really primed to, to like, well, I've, it, it's all good. When we're all good to the patient, uh, it works well. And currently, there are about 11,000 men and women serving in just the Army Nurse Corps, many more in the other armed services. So thank you to those faithful nurses. And Chris, from this incredible topic, what are your top three takeaways? I'll tell you, it's tough to pick uh, only three for this amazing discussion. I think the overreaching theme has to be, and I think it's what we were shooting for with this episode, yeah. Don't think for a moment that the atrocities of Nazi concentration camps couldn't happen again. That wasn't some uh, rent in time that that marked some unusual occurrence that's not uh, not possible again. Uh, there is no limit to the evil that humans can inflict on themselves, and it certainly could happen again. Uh, but for the top three, I would say first, to be silent in the presence of evil is to support that evil, period. Uh, we cannot be silent in the presence of evil. Uh, and second, I really love the way Ashley says this, but the human person has value simply because of personhood as a play on words. I mean, we are created in the image and the likeness of God as a person, and therefore we have value, not because of our abilities, not because of our wit and charm and daunting good looks like you and I, uh, it, it's, it's because of our personhood. That's why we have value. Uh, and then finally, I really loved when he said, we as healthcare providers, whether nurses, podiatrists, dentists, physicians, uh, are likewise, we serve our patients first, not the state, not some initiative, not some, um, mandate. We serve our patients and we will fail to the degree that we forget that. That's right. In fact, in uh, Ashley's paper, it mentioned something about putting too much emphasis on population-based medicine. There is some wisdom in it, but first and foremost, the individual patient comes first, not the population. And I think we've seen that to a degree with sort of the uh, commoditization, you might say, of medical practice, that a gallbladder is a gallbladder and an appendix is an appendix. But but that's not true. We know that. It's a caregiver providing care to someone uh, that needs it. And when we lose that, when we start thinking about populations, the potential for evil and mistreatment slips in. 
Yeah, and when we say it, it could happen here, we're not necessarily saying that, you know, that scope of evil, the concentration camps are coming back. What we are saying, though, is that it's easy to give in, be silent in front of moral wrongs, and then to lead to things that you would not normally thought you would see or do. I think it would be interesting if we could run back in time and talk to uh, physicians of four or five generations ago and ask them, could you ever imagine physicians being forced to participate in a patient's suicide? And and I think most physicians then would have said, oh, absolutely not. That could never happen. Yet we're seeing that uh, in states across the country that take this up uh, as an issue. Well, we thank you, our faithful listeners, for being with us yet again for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. And for those who want to dive maybe deeper into some of the topics, check out our website for bonus links and information from our post, from our guest, and some of the materials that they've put together. Uh, Click latest at the top of the main page. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.